Welcome to Across the Park Podcast, a football podcast on both Everton and Liverpool Football Club, hosted and produced by a group of friends from both sides of the park. We pride ourselves in bringing you the very best conversation from the ongoing matters at both clubs, providing banter and debate. We also release regular specials with guests connected to both clubs, providing insights and interviews never heard before. The back catalogue of these shows is available on our website, acrosstheparkpodcast.co.uk. Don't forget to hit subscribe to Across the Park Podcast on your favourite listening app, and please give us a follow on our social media. Head over to Instagram or Twitter and search at Across the Park PC, or Facebook, search Across the Park. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Across the Park Extra. I've got myself Terry here on for the Red Sides, also joined by fellow Red Phil. Um, I'm delighted to be joined by a special guest, Stephen Warnock, tonight. Um, managed to get Stephen in to join us to do a podcast, talk about his Liverpool career, his time in football after he left Liverpool. Um, hoping to dig some funny stories out here, Stephen. Pleasure to have you with us tonight. Yes, thanks for having me on. Uh, fingers crossed I'll live up to the uh, the billing. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's you know as you may know with, with with across the park extra we you know we we try to speak with ex players, ex coaches, even journalists, you know, and even like celebrity fans, and basically just talk about their time, their career um, in football, um, or, or the memories of of, of the respective clubs, um, and then basically just get you know a little bit of warts and all, sort of get under the skin, find out you know a little bit of the news and things that went on behind the scenes, obviously what you're willing to tell us um and and then also you know just just get some of your thoughts on like the current you know liverpool team and and and, and what's happening with the with the current side and 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 things so you know feel free to to to, to be as candid or, or or as guarded as you want to be really um but obviously you know we're, we're... <laughs> yeah well, well we'll take it we'll be nice we'll, we'll we'll ease you in we'll take it back to the start and obviously Stephen, you're you're a local lad born in Ormskirk or you lived in Ormskirk and went to, went to school there, St. Bede's. So you're playing for the school and is that how you actually get, get scouted? Um, I know Alan Kennedy was the first person to cast his eyes over you. Um, how did that all come about? Uh, to be honest, I um, obviously, like you say, I was playing for my me, me school team and things like that, but I actually played for me... Um, my local team, which was Rougher Colts. Oh, yeah. And I played for Town Green as well because I used to play Saturday, Sunday. So I just wanted to play for as many teams as I could and play as many games as I could. But it was um, it was a manager of one of the teams in the league, um, a guy called Barry Sheriff, who decided to set up the best of the league, if you like. And he had contacts at Liverpool, Everton, Tranmere, Man United and things. So he set us up to go and play against all these teams. And that was the way of almost getting scouted in them days, yeah. was playing against teams. They didn't have scouts stood at every single sideline of every youth game and t- sort of kids' games like they do now. And, um, yeah, I think uh, I went and played for them and got picked up by Everton originally. Um, played against a game, uh, played against Everton in a game and got asked after the game to, to go for a trial. I think in between that, I'd been on the Alan Kennedy Soccer School on half-term. Oh, yeah. Uh, Done really well on that. Uh, Alan had sort of put my name forward to Liverpool, but nothing had come of it. And then um, we played against Liverpool then, and I think the name had rang a bell, and yeah. and it 
they knew from Alan that I'd been put it off from Alan put me into the club. Played against Liverpool and then um sort of didn't get picked up after the game, so I was gutted, <laughs> thinking, right, okay, I'm off off to the blues it is. Oh, and then uh, McDonald's on the way home, uh Hugh McCauley walked in with his family getting uh, getting a getting a burger himself and said, Oh, we tried to catch you after the game and want you to come for a trial and things like that. But I think it was a little bit set up because Barry was the manager of our team, was mates with Hugh McCauley. So I think he'd said, listen, we're going to be in here. If you want to speak to him, come and see him. Um, so, yeah, it was good. How, uh, how old are you then, Stephen? Uh, Ten. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, old, old enough to know that Everton wasn't the right place to go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to be honest, I think it was one of them. I mean, for... For any youngster growing up and you get showed attention by any club, it was great. Um, I was more than happy to go to Everton. I'm not going to lie because for me it was an opportunity to to go and sort of play with good players and and, and hopefully earn the right to train somewhere like that. Um, my dad and my brother are blues, so they were obviously mm. happy as well. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, when, when Liverpool came knocking, I... I in all honest opinion, my my original idea was go to both and see which one you like. Yeah. Because I was I was open minded to the fact that if there's no point in being somewhere if you don't enjoy it. Fortunately for me, I went to Liverpool first and loved it, and and never never went to Everton. Yeah, I suppose you're thinking like, where, where's going to be my best chance to become a professional footballer rather than I want to play for the team I support. Mind you, did you support Liverpool with your dad and your brother supporting Everton? Yeah, it's a split family. All oh, right, uh, yeah. My reds and me, my dad and my brother are blues. So yeah. there was an element of that, but I think, I think in the back of my mind, I was thinking, well, Liverpool aren't going to want me, mm-hmm. so I'll go to Everton because they they've asked me, um, and it was probably only the journey from from Melwood to, to, to McDonald's, where I was thinking that, um, was that's my only option. So I'm going to go there. But we ended up playing Man United as well. And uh, they asked me to go to, the, to, to, uh, to train with them as well. But obviously growing up and being a, a Liverpool fan, standing on the cop, um, and then actually going to Melwood and seeing the coaches. I mean, it was Steve Highway taking the session. Amazing. Um, it was just... I mean, mind blowing. If I'm being honest, who's in that age group with you then? Any, anyone, yeah, I was going to say anyone we'd know that you come through with at the time. Yeah, uh, Dave Whelan, oh, Camel yeah. Fat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, he's done, he's done well outside the football, hasn't he? It's brilliant. I, I love it. I love seeing it. Um, yeah, I played with Dave as a kid. He was known as uh, Teddy Sheringham, and Dave's a big blue. But again, it was the opportunity to play at a club and and to learn and to try and uh, develop as a player. Uh, Dave was a, a really good centre forward. Um, I think he left in around about under 14s, uh, in and around that age. Kev Nolan was my age, again, left around the same age, sort of under 14s. And, and Kev went on to, to go to, uh, to Bolton after that. And obviously, Kev's career is incredible, brilliant career. Um, I'm trying to think of other players who sort of played my age group. Um, other players that you'll know. I mean, the one who was who was tipped for big things coming through was was Ian Armstrong. Oh, right. um, he was probably the best at his age for sort of three four years, from the age of eleven to fifteen. Uh, went to Lillyshaw, did really well there, and then never really kicked on once he came 
into full-time setup and and people in and around him grew and got stronger physically and things like that. But our, our team, as a as a, a young like from sort of under 16s, 17s, 18s, was was really strong. It was arguably one of the strongest age groups, and it was strange that I was the only player who came out of it. We had another lad called Chris O'Brien, who was captain of England, sort of 15, 16, 17, 18s, and then never made it. And you just wonder why sometimes, but. It's um, it, it, it's not as easy as everyone thinks. No, of course. Yeah, well, I think you know you, you you've just said there, haven't you? You, you sort of wonder why. I guess it, it, it's it, it's hard to pin it on because I think a lot of people think it's it's just down to maybe you know a bit of bad luck with injuries and stuff like that. But I think in fairness, you probably had you know as much bad luck as anyone, didn't you, through your sort of academy time, like as you were coming through. I mean, so it isn't just bad luck, is it? I mean, how how was that? Like obviously because you know. It was it multiple times you broke your leg when you were yeah. when you were yeah three times I broke my leg which was I mean I think probably broke it at the right time and it sounds daft when you when you say how to break your leg at the right time but if if I'd have broke my leg when I was sort of twenty five twenty six they just go out and buy someone else mm-hmm. that doesn't happen in an academy they give you time they give you the time to get back and hopefully prove yourself and get fitter and stronger and. Um, they invest their time into you. I think I was naive as to the fact that I hadn't started my career and I just expected to have a career. Yeah. Uh, mm. If if I'd have known now or if I'd have broke me like at 24, 25, whatever it might have been, whilst I was playing, to have that career taken away from you, I mean, that's that, that can be even harder mm. uh, to work mm. way back into it. So um, there's part of me that I often wonder what type of player I could have been, uh, how much it took away from me, those injuries, because it 100% took away certain aspects of, of my game. I used to be a winger. I used to be really, really quick, <laughs> and that'll surprise a lot of people. Um, <laughs> but I definitely lost maybe two, three yards of pace, and I was still quick enough as a player, but I was rapid as a kid. I was really quick. Um, and you just often wonder what that might have taken away from your game. But how old, but babies. How old was your first one, Stephen? Uh, 15, straight out of school. Uh, first first game of the academy season away at Tottenham. Um, and I, I'd literally, Roy Evans was manager at the time and um, I'd been training really well over the pre-season. I'd been up at Melwood the season before doing a couple of sessions with the the reserves and things like that. And I was basically told that it'd be a matter of weeks before I'd be going up to the first team and training with the reserves on a regular basis and things like that. And that was at the age of 15. So it sort of told you the level that I was at and regarded in. And to obviously have that taken away from you straight away, that was the hardest thing to deal with out of all of it. Yeah. You say like you were at that level. I can't remember who was speaking to, whether it was someone who knew you or a former player. But they were saying, like, physically as well as ability, uh, coming up through the like teenage years, and that you were just well ahead. You were like a man amongst boys, like on the pitch. Yeah, possibly. Um, I think. Yeah, I, I don't know because you don't see it yourself, do you? No. I knew. I, I sort of. I worked very, very hard. I knew that technically and, and tactically, I was. I was good. Probably not as good as others, but I knew I worked harder than everyone else. Yeah, um, and that sometimes I think that's that's what probably did see me through. 
beyond others was my my work ethic. You say, you know, it's good that you broke your leg at that age because academy setups, they don't get rid of you, they kind of invest in you and stuff. But is that necessarily the case of all clubs? Because am I right in thinking you get your YTS offered to you at 16? So they could have just said to you, no, nah, you're not getting one. But No, well, it was straight out of school, so I was already on a YTS ah, at 15. Okay. So I'd, I've already signed my YTS for, I think I'd signed two years. Uh, the, the agreement was two years. And then, obviously, when I broke my leg, I was in the, uh, for the second time, I was in the, in negotiations to sign a professional contract with the club. So it was, uh, I was still six. Was I 16 at the time? Must have been. Uh, and at the age of 17 is when you can sign your first professional contract. Ah, okay. So I was in negotiations to sign a contract at 17, uh, a three-year deal, and then broke my leg the day before I was meant to sign it. Cool. Um, and unfortunately, the club honoured it. But going back to your, your question about it, yeah, clubs might might just think, well, we're not going to get any. It, it depends on what sort of what the club have got, what facilities they've got, what sort of staff or how many staff they've got can they deal with having a player long-term injury for that long but there was also I think there was myself Richie Partridge um, another another lad uh, Kev Doherty so Richie did his ACL Kev Doherty broke his femur so there was three players with broken legs or Mm -hmm. major injuries at the time when I was when I uh, got injured the first time myself so um, but a, a club like Liverpool Financially, they could afford to do it and they had the staff as well. Pro- yeah, so I'm just thinking like if you would have ended up at Everton after all, I wonder if, and you still would have broke your leg, I wonder if they'd have nurtured you in the same way and stuck by you. I mean, particularly after the second and third breaks. I think they would, yeah. if I'm being completely honest. I think I think when, you, when you're talking about how clubs would look after people, I'm talking maybe League One and League Two. Yeah. I think mm. your championship clubs to a certain certain pedigree um but definitely premier league they'd look after you they'd make sure that you were fully fit you give you your opportunity and again it comes down to what you've done previously and what they expect from you and where they think you could have progressed to i think they'll always give you that opportunity to to showcase what you can do again yeah so obviously at the time you're playing for England under 16. So obviously you're obviously considered best in the country, or certainly right up there for your age, aren't you? Yeah, um, I'd, I mean in my England youth team, under 15s anyway was myself, Leon Osman, yeah, um, Joe Cole. So straight away you've got good professionals. Um, when I stepped up to the under 16s, we had Gareth Barry in the age group as well. Um, so we had a, a competitive group at that age group. And to be part of that, I actually uh, I got offered a place at Lillishaw and turned it down. Uh, I look back on that, and that's probably a bit of a regret, but mm. I was a bit of a, a homeboy at the time, didn't really want to move away, didn't think I needed to, perhaps maybe talked out of it a little bit by Steve Highway, saying that you'll actually get better education and better coaching here than yeah. you will at Lillichaw. Yeah. But perhaps that moving away and moving to a, a different environment might have made me grow up a little bit quicker, might have changed my outlook on on sort of moving in the future at clubs and things like that and knowing that I could settle at cl- settle somewhere else. Um but yeah, I mean I was I was very highly regarded as a kid. Um I'm, there's there's no way of sort of 
talking differently about it. I knew I was I was looked at by a lot of clubs as a high hope of Liverpool coming through. I remember Joe Cole coming through in, you know, like the, the FA Youth Cup and all that. And I've been a massive fan of him right throughout his career. Um, I actually think that he, he was so, so good and, and potentially underrated by a lot of people. Um, what, what, what was it like close up? Was he as good as I think he was? Yeah, I mean, when we were when we were f- sort of 14, 15 and we were going for all the England trials, you started off with probably 200 kids and you'd end up getting whittled down, coming down, coming down, coming down. And I I knew I was arguably one of the best players at the time in, in the country, but everyone kept on going on about this Joe Cole and <laughs> everyone was talking about him. And I remember the first time I seen him, I was thinking, wow, this kid is frightening. It was like he was like a PlayStation <laughs> um, like player. All yeah. the tricks he could do, all the way he looked after himself, the way he rode tackles. Um, he played like it was playing with a player five years older than you. It was phenomenal uh, to, to watch him and to play with him. And then when I actually ended up playing with Joe, um, Joe sort of played as a centre midfielder or a number 10 for our England team. And I struck up a really good relationship with him, just just bounced off each other really well. But he's, he was just phenomenal. He was just like, just give the ball to Joe. It was one of those moments where you just knew that other teams couldn't live with him. And every team that we came up against internationally would come off the pitch and would be like, who is he? And you could just see the way that you didn't have to understand the language. You could just see them pointing at him and just talking about him. He was phenomenal as a kid. Um, Like you say, the clips of the youth finals and things like that for West Ham and the career he went on to have, um, probably hampered by the injury he picked up for England, um, just probably never got back to that same level for whatever reason. Um, But incredible, incredible talent. Yeah. So he, do you think he actually achieved his potential? Because obviously he was a big player for Chelsea when they were dominating everything and he scored some important good goals for England and that. But do you feel like he could have been even more? Um, well, look at mine in his career, which way, which one went better. <laughs> uh, don't get me wrong, I had bad injuries and things like that. But Joe went on to win uh, champ, uh, the, the Premier League with Chelsea. Uh, yeah. 56 England caps or in and around that. Uh, something like that, played at major, major tournaments for his country. Is that an underachievement? Personally, I don't think it is. I think no, it, it's I, a, I don't know what you mean, but um, I, I think when you're coming through the ages at 17, 16, and everyone in, in the world, and let's not beat around the bush, it was worldwide, his name was known because mm. of what he was doing. Um the pressure on his shoulders to, to to reach them levels must have been so so hard on him. Um, and I think we get away from that fact is that he was pinned as England's next big hope. And to deal with that pressure and to, to sustain it for a long period of time, he was phenomenal for Chelsea when he played at Chelsea. He was untouchable at times. Um, and I, I think he was he was outstanding. So to play at the level he did, I, I still think he was he was phenomenal. Yeah, amazing, amazing career. I just think he could have been maybe top 10 in the world, or only maybe he was at times anyway, but I don't know if he was perceived. As yeah, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but um, just coming back, back to, to yourself then, so obviously just before you make your Liverpool debut, 
your own own at Coventry. You said before about your sort of willingness or maybe unwillingness to, to travel and test out different waters and stuff. So uh, how did that come about? Was it Were you told to do that? Did you feel happy about it? How did it go down? <laughs> I actually got a, uh, I got a phone call in the summer from, uh, I think I can't remember who it was now, at the club. Might have been, it might have just come through my agent just saying, listen, uh, the club thinks it's a good idea for you to go out on loan. Uh, this was after Bradford. I'd been at Bradford for three months and I'd had quite a bit of interest off the back of the, the Bradford move because uh, it had gone well. Bradford had said that they'd like to take me back as well. So my agent rang me and he said, listen, uh, Gary Mack's gone to Coventry, wants you to go there, um, but it would be a season-long loan. So straight away, I just thought, yeah, I'll do it. But then I got a phone call from um, my agent about a day later saying, crew want to take you as well. Um, mm-hmm. And I remember I said, well, I want to go to, to Coventry with, with Gary because obviously I knew Gary from Liverpool anyway. Uh, and I thought, if he like, I know what he likes me, he's seen me as a player, whatever. So uh, it works well. And he said, do me a favour, just go and meet Dario Grady and just entertain him, sort of, Go and play the game if you like, and and just say yeah, not for me though. So when I when I met Dario Grady, uh, went round the training ground, went to the ground, and I, uh, he said, "So what do you think?" And I said, "Well, I've got another offer from Coventry, but um, I'll have a think and I'll let you know." So I get back in the car, rang my agent, and I went, "Listen, just ring you sort it out and just say I'm not going or whatever, but give it a couple of days just to pass over." couple of days later, I got a phone call from Dario Grady and he goes, uh, Stephen, it's Dario Grady, how are you? So I was like, yeah, yeah, fine, you. And he was like, yeah, have you made your mind up yet? So I thought, yeah, you're going to here. So I went, yeah, have you, have you not had a phone call? So he was like, no. I said, oh, someone was meant to ring you. I've decided to go to Coventry. Oh. And I was thinking, wow, that's a bit harsh. So yeah. not long into the, uh, the season at Coventry, um, we're playing crew away from home. So I see him down the corridor as we're, as we're coming in. So I went, Dario, um, just wanted to have a word about what happened. There was a bit of a misunderstanding. He just walked past me, just blanked me. <laughs> <laughs> All right then, I'm glad I didn't sign for you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but I went and met like Gary Mack and had a good chat with him. Liked what he had to say. Probably um, moving away at that point was the right thing for me to do. I knew that was what I needed. If I'd have gone to crew, I'd have stayed at home and I needed to get away to test myself, to, to live on my own, to realise uh, what it was going to be like. Because I think by that point as well, I was seeing the likes of Vignal Traore going in front of me and I was thinking, I'm not getting a look in here. So it doesn't matter how well I'm playing. These players have been bought into play, so they're not going to put an academy graduate into the team. So I just figured it out in my head. I need to go away and play. Um, and it was the best thing I did. It was such a good year. It was very tough because I think it was probably halfway through the season, Gary Mack left because his wife um, got cancer. So he sat down from the role. Um, but fortunately for me, Eric Black took the job, who was Gary Mack's assistant and an incredible coach. And um, yeah, it, it benefited me massively moving away and, and being at Coventry. And it actually came to the point where I was almost thinking of signing until uh, Liverpool made me an offer of a two-year contract. Yeah. yeah. Oh, right, right in saying you got Fan Player of the Year when you were at Coventry? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but 
the, the great thing about that season was as well, I played various positions. So I started off as a left-back, then I went into left midfield and then I went into centre midfield, played centre-back as well. And it was just such a, a good education uh, for me growing up um, and being trusted to play in those positions as well. Um, and it, it just it, it gave me massive confidence that people rated me as a player. After being injured for, for almost three years, um, that was that was nice to to know that you were you were rated as a player, and it gave me huge confidence. During that time, Stephen, and before it, had you had much contact with Gerard Ulia? You know, was he much of an influence on your career at all? And had you spoke too much? No, not at all. Um, coming through, I got overlooked in reserve games. He obviously didn't take the reserve team. Mm. Um, a lot of that was left to, to other people to to deal with. And as I say, I was getting left out of reserve teams uh, because of the likes of Vignal and uh, and Traore, if they were stepping down to play at that level or if they were trying to progress through. Um, you'd also have other players playing at that level, I think. I'm trying to think who else played now. But there'd be other players. Steve Harkness, I think, was still about then. Um, yeah. So you weren't getting a look in at all. And then when I actually went on loan to, to Coventry, I didn't get one phone call from from Julia or anyone from the club, um, and I, I I almost lost a little bit of confidence in it to be honest. Mm-hmm. And I got a phone call, sort of, I think it was about two weeks before the end of the season uh, at, at Coventry. I got a phone call from my agent just saying, "Listen, I've had uh, I've had contact with Liverpool. They want you to go in and, and sit down, uh, have a chat." And when I went, when I sort of uh, went and sat down. A lot of it was done by Phil Thompson, uh, who never really spoke to me at all, and then came out of it and just said uh, they wanted to to sign me on a new two-year deal. And I was umming and ahhing, and then Rick Parry basically said, listen, just sign the deal, you'll be fine in the summer. So he obviously knew Julio was yeah. gone, yeah. Um, and that Benitez was coming in. And it was interesting, when, when Rafa actually came into the club, um, he knew, he knew who I was straight away, spoke to me, knew I'd had a good season at Coventry, um, knew I'd played various positions, um, which was which was great to hear. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a bit of a strange one, isn't it? Because it it, it obviously you know for, it's hard to put your finger on what the reasons. But I mean, I always had the impression that Julia was was a sort of quite hands on with with the younger players because I think he was instrumental in setting up like the French academy, wasn't he, at Le Charleroi or whatever it was, um, yeah. and. And he, he always gets credited with like sort of that next generation of French, you know, superstars that came through in 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 the in the nineties. And so to hear it from that perspective, that he wasn't actually you know very keen in terms of maybe um, connecting with some of the like the more local lads who were in the U team, but and and he was more focused on maybe some of his like French imports. Yeah, it, it's quite interesting. Well, that was the big thing. It was uh, players who were bought in, and you are judged on your signings and what they're doing to the club, aren't they? Uh, what mm. To have and so for him to be buying players and he was he was always going to play them really uh, yeah. so that was that was the big thing for me was that I knew I wasn't going to get a look in we were we were really lucky at the time and I think in a way Julier was we had Alec Miller who was like the connection between the youth team the reserves and the first team and he was brilliant he was such a good coach he was always positive about everything and trying to improve you as a player. So you always felt there was someone that you could go to for help and someone who you could go to for advice. 
Um, and, and Alec was always the guy. He was brilliant. I, I absolutely loved him to bits. I thought he was such a an important person for the young players coming through at Liverpool at the time. Was Sammy, was Sammy Lee about at that time? Yeah, he was. Um, but I think... I, Sammy was Sammy was great with the young lads as well, uh, always positive and things like that. But again, Sammy's trying to look after himself. He's trying to look after the first team, uh, make sure that the first team players are happy. Um, he's trying to spin so many plates as a as a coach and things like that. But um, Sammy was always great with me. I, I can never have any complaints with Sammy. Yeah. So obviously Rafa comes in, and you must be happy on the side because you're thinking, well. I wasn't really his favourite, but maybe I'll be this guy's. And I think if you think of the type of player that Rafa likes, he likes full-blooded players who are committed, doesn't he? And I'll be honest, I don't think I've ever, and maybe I'll include Gerard in this, but I've never seen anyone who tackles as hard as you. That's what <laughs> I remembered on the cop, going through people like a freaking train. Um, but that, that strikes me as the type of thing that Rafa's into. So early on, especially when he's took over, you've, you've played 30 games there in the first season. So, you must have been made up, at the, you know, in the earlier stages. Yeah, it, do you know what? It was brilliant. Um, but again, I, I came into the first team as a winger or a left midfielder, um, and I'm not, I'm not daft. I knew we had a depleted squad at the time, but I knew it was an opportunity for me to to break through and try and make the most of it. Um, ended up getting pushed to, or played at left back once Jimmy made the mistake against Burnley. That was that was pretty much the start of my career as a left-back uh, full-time in football was um, I was then seen as a, as, as a left-back and Rafa played me left-back a lot. But the big thing with Rafa was was that he'd always have the handbrake on me. He, he'd never want me to go forward. He always wanted a team shape and things like that. As soon as I sort of left, I knew I had so much more to give going forward um, and just became a different player when I left the club. I think if I'd have sort of tried to play my own way a little bit more at Liverpool and not being scared as much mm-hmm. uh, as to losing my place for certain systems or the way he wanted me to play, things might have been a little bit different. You showed some of your attacking prowess in a game against Fulham uh, where you've scored. And I, I think it was against the cop, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So there's plenty of Liverpool, you know, people who've come and go, but they can't say that, can they? So no. how, did that, how did that feel? Oh, I think you can see it in the celebration. <laughs> yeah. like, that's like, I mean, I, I remember obviously standing on the cop as a kid and always dreaming of, of playing at Anfield or pulling on the shirt and things like that. But your goals change because you get in the team and you think, right, first run out, first start, first derby, first goal. Do you know what I mean? They, they change all the time. And when, when you uh, when you start doing things like that, and then to score in the cop as a, as a Liverpool player is just phenomenal. Um, because the cheer, I think it was five one at the time. I made it five one or four one, but the cheer was like the yeah. biggest cheer of the night. It was great because <laughs> I think that everyone knew how much it meant to me um, and how, how much I'd celebrated it. Um, so I, it's one of the proudest moments in, in my career um, to, to score in front of the cop. Yeah, I think you know what you're saying there. Well, like everyone knows what it means. I, you know, you you always get that feeling, don't you? That the fans, there's just a little bit of something extra special. You know, when when it's a local lad who's who's scored, it's it's like there's 
there's just an, like a, a a warmer feeling about it all, isn't it? You know what I mean? Well, a, a local lad scores or, or comes into the team, they get the arms put round them. It, 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 it's just different. There's just something different about it, that connection. Yeah, there is. Um, I, I, I've said this before, and whether people agree with it or not, I'm not sure, but it was, it was certainly what I felt was, like, I'm not a scouser. I'm not deemed as a scouser. Um, I'm, I'm deemed as a woolly back or someone who's not quite a scouser. Now, I I totally disagree with it because my mum and dad are from Bootle and I see, like, I'm brought up on the values of being a scouser um, and the way that everything was, the way we lived and things like that. And I never felt like I got a connection with the fans the way scousers do. And that's mm. the way I felt. Um, I still think it's probably quite true now. Um, but it, it's just one of those things when, you, when you're growing up is that I think they always want a, a young academy graduate to do well. Um, I definitely felt that, but there was never that connection that you see with, with young scouse players coming through. Well, well, I'm skipping ahead a bit, but you've obviously, I'm going to come back as well in a minute, but you come, you've played against Liverpool and you, you've put the flower wreath on the cop and the cop have sang your name. So I think that's born from the fact that we knew you were a local lad, and you know, yeah, you, yeah. you know, you did nothing but give your best for, for the oh, for the team. Oh no, there's never any doubt in that because I think when you come back to Liverpool, I think players, whether they're foreign players or whatever, there's always that you've worn the you've worn the badge and you give your all for the club. Um, I think there's there's no doubt in that that was the feeling of when I was laying the reef was like. They were made up that it was an ex-player and, and an academy graduate who understood everything that Hillsborough stood for. And I yeah. think that was the big thing about it. I mean, I I was crying walking down to the cop. It was like that. Everyone always asks me my proudest moment of football, whether it was playing for England, Liverpool, World Cup, whatever. That was my proudest moment in football, bar none, because no one will ever get that. No one will ever feel that again. Um, and no one else felt what I felt in that stadium. Yeah. Everyone can feel what they feel going to a World Cup or feel what they feel pulling that shirt on. But walking down, knowing exactly what that meant to the people of Hillsborough uh, and the fans and a club growing up as a local fan. Yeah. Hairs on my neck are standing up now because I can, yeah. I can feel what it meant like as I was walking down. And I remember coming back to the centre circle and um, Andre Uya, who was uh, a Dutch international, played round, like played for big clubs and things like that and whatever, been to World Cups and played in huge games. He said, I've never seen anything like that in my life. He was like, that is phenomenal. And he was, he was almost welling up himself. And he was just like, that's just, never forget that. He said, I'll never forget that. He said, I don't know how you feel. I was just like, I was blubbering. I was gone. Yeah, yeah. that point into moment. Yeah. Taking it back to uh, the 04-05 season, um, weird one for you, isn't it? Because the way it turns out, the way Rafa treated you with regards to the League Cup, the Champions League. So we'll come on to the Champions League story in a minute. But like with the League Cup and playing in every round and that, just what, what was going on there? Like, well. That's again where you you lose the respect for the manager, um, and that was the the sort of the breakdown with 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 Rafa was. So whenever we played a, a league cup game, 
he'd just turn around and say, this is your competition. You'll play all the way. But it gets to a certain point where he goes, I can win a trophy here. And we, we, we got them to the semi-final against Watford. And I remember being on the bench. I think I was the only player who made the bench for the, unless Darren Potter did for one of them. But I think I was the only player who got on the bench for both games against Watford. Mm-hmm. Um, but all the players felt bitterly disappointed that that had happened. I think you understand it to a certain degree, but uh, no one even got a look in. And then obviously in the final, none of us who'd played the majority of the games got to the final because I think it was Chelsea, wasn't it? We end up playing. And you go to the final and it's like, well, now you've got to win that. You can't put your kids out, but if, if he'd stuck to his word, then he does. Um, so we'd, we'd have probably got hammered, but um, we, we, yeah, we, but we felt that done too. Yeah, even if it's just that, you know, it, it, you can sort of sympathise a little bit, as you say, you know, there's a trophy on offer um, and, and it's got to be won. But at the same time, you know, to completely axe everyone who was involved in the run, you know, and and, and not put a smatter of some of the some of the players in in maybe less risky positions, or you, you know, it, 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 I can you can understand why that sort of sticks in the throat of them players and why it would cause some of them players to lose respect for them a little bit, you know, absolutely because Klopp wouldn't. I still, <clears throat> Klopp wouldn't. I don't think he would. I don't think Klopp would do that. And I think there's there's always a place to try and get. You've got you, you know you've got to give these kids the encouragement, haven't you? As well, you know these younger players. Um, oh, and to, and to... But you can see it now with the, with the way Klopp is. There's a, there's a a huge respect both ways, and and that's earned from both sides. And um, I, I agree. I I mean I agree to a certain degree. I, I think it'd be interesting if you got to the final because suddenly the dynamic changes. And and what I mean by that is if you're going paying. 60, 70 quid for a, for a ticket for the final and you're making a trip to, to Cardiff, Wembley, whatever it might be. Are you happy seeing him field a, a team of youngsters um, who might get beat 3 or 4 nil against a, a top team in Chelsea or do you want to see your team go out and win that trophy and have a great day out for your, for your 60, 70 quid? I do get it from, from both sides, um, but I, I totally agree with, with you that there should have been a representation of someone at least who'd been through the rounds or, and I'm not saying it should have been me, but there should have been someone at least. Mm. Mm. So Stephen, I, I know <clears throat> the horrendous story about the Champions League squad um, announcement, um, but a, a lot of people haven't heard it. So what, what, tell us about that. And it's just a horrendous story. Um, yeah. So we played uh, Aston Villa on the last game of the season and, um, the break from the last game of the season to the Champions League final was two weeks. So obviously we're in training for the for the two week period, and uh, Josemi uh, had played the Aston Villa game, but he'd been out for I think he'd been out for seven months in and around that uh, leading up to that game. Got himself fit for the for the final game of the season, and then sort of trained uh, for the two weeks, and then. As we came in for, I think it was two or three days before the final, the squad list was going up as the team were travelling. Came into the the changing room and everyone literally, pretty much, those who who were wondering whether they were going to be in the squad or not, ran over to the board to check the list and check the list and my name was on it. So I was thinking, delighted. Uh, Champions League final, absolute highlight of your career really and where do you go from there? And uh, went out in the car, rang rang everyone, get your get your ticket. Like I had tickets ready 
I just said, just get your flights. I'm in the squad. And the squad was 18, so I was guaranteed to be on the bench, um, which was just incredible. And then um, everyone's booking flights, making sure everything's sorted. A couple of hours later, I got a phone call from uh, Paco Y. Esteran, who's Rafa's number two, just saying, listen, Rafa's made a mi- oh, we've made a mistake on the squad list. You're no longer in the squad. Um, and I think what word of mouth got round, basically, uh, Hossamy went in, had a kickoff at the staff and wasn't happy and they promoted him into the, the squad and left me out. And I was, again, seen as a, a young academy graduate, but I was actually 22, 23. So I'm not a youngster as such, but young in, in terms of appearances and things like that for the club. So, um, yeah, I didn't even get the phone call from Rafa, which was which was poor. Um, and again, that respect goes out the window then. And I had players coming up to me after the after the whistle, sort of saying, oh, it's crap what he's done and um, we'll sort things out, like medal and things like that. Because on the night, it's completely different to what it is now. There's 25 medals handed out and uh, physios, chairman, things like that. People get doctor, they all get a medal um, and you don't get a medal because it's just the 18 and then the staff on the night. Um, so there was, like myself, Cinema Pongol, Anthony Talak, Neil Mella, uh, who'd all played, and Chris Kirkland, played vital roles in, in getting there along the way, um, who didn't get a medal and didn't. Um, but obviously, they weren't in the squad originally. They weren't in that 18, to be mm-hmm. told a couple of hours later that uh, you're no longer in the squad. Horrendous. And we, Absolutely. yeah, I mean... And I'm not just saying this because you've got your on, but would you rather be taking Stephen Warnock to a final, full boarded, knows what it means, or Jose Amy? Yeah, hot to me. He was, let's be honest. You might, with all due respect, I thought he was shit. It's not his fault. No, yeah. it, it really isn't his fault. I mean, you go into the office kicking off, out you get. Do you know what yeah. I mean? You don't, have to, yeah. you don't have to bow down to it or to agree to it. So, no, no blame at all lies with him. Um, do I think there was an element of disrespect towards someone? Absolutely. To think you're above someone going in that squad. Um, but he tried his hand and he's walked away with a winner's medal. Yeah, yeah it's, it's poor. I, I, you know, feel free to tell me if, if, if it's something you can't answer. But how, was there any like senior players who... who almost had the manager's ear at that time who were able to sort of, who could have stepped in maybe and said, I mean, I know Gerard was obviously a massive player at the time, but he's still relatively young himself, wasn't he? He was a young captain. He was only like, what, how old was Gerard then in 2005? Must have been, what, Four 24? Or, or, or even Carragher, you know what I mean? He was he was a senior player. Is there, is there no no chance where they would maybe question the manager's judgment on, on that if, if it was known within the squad? Yeah, listen, not knowing how it works in the dressing room. Yeah, but... I mean, they they could have said something, but they're in the final. They're happy. Mm. They're concentrating on themselves, which I again understand. And um, listen, they said things to me after the game um, that never never came about. Um, I, I don't again. I don't hold it against them. It, mm. it's, it's not their their issue. Just yeah. uh, to, to change it round a little bit. Would it happen today? Would they? Would the players accept that today? 
in the in the current Liverpool team? Absolutely no. No, no, no chance. Yeah, fair what, what was it like then the first time you met up again with the, with the squad and that and Rafa? You, you must have been well, emotions must have been all over the place. The first time I saw him after it was on the on the pitch after the game. Um, so he's obviously celebrating. He come up to me and sort of I, I can't even remember what he said. Uh, he didn't even really say too much. Oh, so and, you've uh, gone? You've gone anyway? We had to go. Yeah, yeah. Well, oh, okay. this is the thing. We we all flew out the morning of the game. So the players flew out two days before, I think it was, just to, to sort of get settled and get sorted. And then um, we flew out the day of the game uh, with the players' wives and girlfriends of the players and the players who weren't playing. And then I'm trying to think now. So after the game, uh, we all went in the changing room. We were on the pitch, went in the changing room. And then we didn't really hear. I didn't really speak to him, didn't really say anything. And then that night we had a party in the hotel. I didn't really speak to him, didn't really... In, in all honesty, I was I was still gutted. I was made up with one because I was a fan of Liverpool, but I'd just completely changed how I felt about everything. I was gutted, absolutely gutted. Um, and I remember thinking, like, that's not how I should feel. So I was obviously celebrating after the, uh, after the game and, like... I, don't get me wrong, I just witnessed one of the, the greatest games in football history. Um, mm. I couldn't believe it myself. And then being on the pitch afterwards, you, you can have a look at the, all the photos. You, you won't see me anywhere on the photo. I was stuck at the back almost like just felt left out completely. Felt like mm. I'd, I almost felt like I'd done something wrong. Yeah. Um, so I just stood at the back, didn't really celebrate. That night we had a, well, sorry, after the game, went in the changing room, uh, didn't really do anything. All the lads were getting photos with the cup. I never had a photo with it. I felt, again, I felt like gutted. That night went to the, the team hotel. We had a bit of a party. I didn't stay for, for too long. And then the next day was arguably the worst part about it all. So all the players were back on the plane to go for the parade in Liverpool. And they put all the wives on the plane with the players. So all the lads who played, all their wives and girlfriends got on the plane with them. All the lads who didn't play and weren't involved. We got stuck in the airport with all the fans. Oh, yeah, um, that, mil- that military airport, that little tiny crap. Yeah, yeah. We were all in. And we didn't even make the uh, parade. I watched it on Sky Sports News. Oh, yeah, shocking. And uh, so we got back. I'm trying to think when we got back now. Uh, into in for pre-season when we came back, and it was literally he came up to us on the first day and sort of apologised, and he pulled me, Mella and Pongol, I think it was. I think Latalak might have gone at this point, or he wasn't in, and uh, he said, "Oh, I'm I'm sorry," and I was like, "What took you so long? Why have you not picked the phone up over pre-season? Why have you not done this before?" And um, I said, you're not even sorry. I said, it's just the fact of you've come in, you've got to see us every day. Um, and I just thought it was, again, huge lack of respect for the players and, and he didn't care. Yeah. So from the the next season, then you've only made <clears throat> six appearances and then you've gone to Blackburn, haven't you, in, in the January. Yeah. So yeah. <clears throat> I think, did Rafa, had your heart gone for like, your commitment to Rafa and things like that, or I wanted out. I wanted out straight away. Um, there was a 
there was a period in the in the summer transfer window where there was myself and uh, Lucas Neal involved in a swap deal from Blackburn, and I was made up. Couldn't wait to get out. Thought I need a, a change. I need a manager who wants me uh, and wants to to play me. Mark Hughes had been uh, speaking to to Craig Bellamy about me, and Bella's just said to me, "Listen, you'll love it there. It's everything that suits you down to the ground. Hard working. Um, you, you'll you'll love training every single day." Bellas didn't really like Rafa's training either. He said, better than here. You'll enjoy the training more. Um, so, again, I, uh, I'm, I'm, in the, uh, I'm in the car on my way to Blackburn, get the call. Right, deal's being agreed. Get, get halfway. I think I got to uh, Charnet Richard Services and I get a phone call from the agent again just saying, listen, um, they've pulled the plug on the deal. Liverpool want me to go back. They've changed their mind. So I come in the next day, I'm sat in the, uh, in the physio room and everyone's like, what happened? said, apparently Rafa didn't want me to go. He said he wants me to stay, um, didn't want the deal to happen. Two seconds later, Rafa walks in. I'm sat in this like massage chair in this physio room and he goes, what are you doing here? <laughs> and I was like, what? And he said, why haven't you gone? I thought you were going to Blackburn. And I was like, I got told that I was like wanted back here. I don't know who's told you that. And I literally went out, and apparently it was Rick Parry and um, the owner, Mr. Moores. It was their decision to keep me. Uh, they wanted me to stay at the club because they wanted, again, academy players to be in and around the club because we knew what it meant to the club and things like that. And he, he was, they were wanting me to stay. Um, I picked up a, what did I get now? I had a hernia operation uh, not long after that. Then I picked up another hernia in and around December. So that's why I didn't play too many games that season. It was like a bit of a, a stop-start situation. But in my in my head, I was thinking, get yourself to January and get yourself out. And fortunately for me, the Blackburn deal was still on the table. Yeah. It's funny, we were only talking about it two weeks ago on the podcast, me and Teddy, and I was saying about your career and your time at Liverpool, and I was saying, like Stephen Warnock was, was like a boss player for us. And then... And then he was just gone. And I was like, I couldn't mm. remember why. <laughs> I couldn't remember like, yeah. what went wrong. You know, or there's so many things that can happen behind the scenes that can change players' careers that fans don't see. There's yeah, so yeah. much that can happen. Um, obviously, my relationship with Rafa was, was uh, broke down. And the thing as well that people probably don't understand was that wasn't the first time the Champions League that he'd left me out of a squad or messed up on a squad. We were playing Tottenham at home one time. And... Uh, Came in, looked at the squad. I'm not on the squad list. You're in for training in the morning at like 11 o'clock. I went out the night before. Uh, it was a mate's birthday. Had a few drinks. Came in for training the next day. I'm sat there with my training gear on to go out to train. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm going out to train. And he's like, you're starting today. And I had to, <laughs> walk, him, had to walk him into the changing room and show him the squad list. And he was like, oh, no. Well, I've made a mistake on that. You, you're playing. So I had to go up to his office. I had to make a decision then. What do I do? So I, I had to go up to his office and say, listen, I've been out last night. I've had a few drinks at a mate's birthday. Uh, I'm fit enough to train, but I'm playing against... If, if Aaron Lennon's playing today, he's going to roast me alive. I'll get through a training session, but I won't get him through a game. Um, he put me on the bench and I ended up coming on for 20 minutes in the game. Yeah. It's chaos. Like and and I guess that's just a side that as you say, fans just didn't see or don't don't appreciate or, or know that that was happening. But what what is it? Is it do you think 
that's a reflection on Rafa, or, or was it disorganisation in like the backroom team? Because I, I obviously famously fell out with Easter on in the end, didn't he? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know because again, I don't know who makes them them squad lists up. I don't know who put all them up. Um, that's something I I, I wasn't privy to. Um, but for me, you're the manager. The book stops with you. You, you don't blame someone else. You you make sure that that lift's done and dusted and it's final. And because that's your team, you're yep. the one picking the team on the Saturday or the Wednesday, whatever day it might be. Um, that's who it stops with. Yeah, I mean, I think we we know through like what we've heard that Rafa was a, a cold man. He wasn't someone who puts his arm around people and and that. But never ever would have thought of him as a, a disorganised man. Yeah, a lot <laughs> of detail. Yeah. Yeah. Um, listen, uh, the, the big thing for me is is that I I lost I lost respect for Rafa from that side of things. I'll never lose respect for Rafa in great manager, um, as in tactic tactically learn a lot under Rafa. Yeah. Uh, I'll be forever grateful to him that he gave me my Liverpool debut and he played me for a, a, what sixty seven games. He gave me sixty seven appearances. For that, I will always be indebted to him I'll always be grateful but from the other side of things which I think could have potentially took me to the level of being a consistent player for Liverpool for years he, he couldn't give me that mm. um, so there's the pitfalls that's what makes Klopp an incredible manager now because mm. he's got the balance of both he knows how to make feel, players feel wanted when they don't even play when they come to the team they understand they they run for a brick wall from him for him because they love the type of person he is. They love his honesty. They love the type of character he is. And but that again, you, you described Rafa so well there. He, he is cold. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So who were you close to in in the squad, Stephen? Like um, who, who was your sort of mates in, in the first team? To be honest, I I, I mean when I was coming through, um, I had a a bit of a mixture. I like to mingle with everyone. Um, yeah. I'm nosy. I like to know what where people come from, the clubs they've played for, uh, different things like that. But when you when you are an academy graduate, you tend to stick with the academy lads still um, because I've known them for 10, 10 or 5, 10 years, whatever it might be. So you know yeah. the ins and outs of them. You, they know how to make you tick and, and vice versa. They know when you're having a good day, a bad day. Um, so majority of the time, it would be the, the youth lads. Yeah, yeah. So, did, were you like privy to anything that was going on when when Gerard was about to go to Chelsea? I think you were still there, weren't you? When all that was going off? Yeah, well, I mean, the interesting thing about that was Rafa actually walked out with a fax in his hand, saying, um, and he was quite happy about it. Quite happy with himself was we just uh, agreed a forty five million uh, forty five million euro deal for for Gerard to go to Chelsea, and he had the fax, and he was like, "Yeah, he's done." Because it to the players. Pardon? He was announcing it to the players. Yeah, yeah, pretty much, because everyone was like, where's Stevie? What's going on? Um, and it was a bit like, we were all, all gutted because obviously he's the best player. He's the player that is your captain and things like that. Or And you're thinking, don't want to lose him. Um, mm. And then obviously things change around really quickly. Um, mm. Caro was, cool. was furious, absolutely yeah. furious. Um, and and let, let Rafa know. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah, because you're selling your best player, aren't you? For and that 45 million euro at that time was still cheap, I think. And to Chelsea, yeah, exactly. Yeah, 
player of that quality. So, um, and then when he came back, um, it was obviously open arms and happy to have him back. From my personal opinion, and I've always said this, is that Rafa always wanted to be the main man and he never was with Gerard there. Mm. And that was probably something that Rafa couldn't take because you, you think of him at Valencia, he was the main man at Valencia. He was the He'd done something that no manager had done before. He took them to La Liga titles and sort of, or for years anyway, took them to a Champions League final. And he was he was adored. Whereas when he came to Liverpool, he was always playing second fiddle. Do you know what? I'm I'm glad you've said that. You've sort of given it as a straight bullet because it, there has been you know suggestions that maybe Gerard didn't feel wanted, but no one will quite come out and say what you've just said. And you know. I made it quite clear that that was almost true. So that helps me sort of have a bit more forgiveness for Gerard considering it, even considering it in the, in the first place. So I think, you know, you are basically saying that maybe he wasn't as loved by Rafa as he should have been. Yeah, I, th- I think the other thing with, with Stevie as well is is that he was desperate to win trophies. And, and yeah. this this sort of great phrase that we have now, we're, we're in transition, if you like. We were at that point in a massive transitional stage, and I think probably Stephen probably looked at it and thought, "How long am I going to sit round and wait for a trophy at this at this point in my career? Is this going to be another five years or whatever it might be?" And I want to go win that Premier League title. And you you are looking at what Chelsea are doing. You're thinking Chelsea are making huge strides in the transfer market. They're buying the best players, and they had arguably the best manager at the time. In mm. world football, in Jose Mourinho, mm. um, and and that is a pull. I don't care who you are. There is there is a little bit in in everyone that would go. That mm. might suit me, um, and luckily, the fans' reaction told him different, didn't it? It told him that he was adored here, and mm. that you want to do it here. And I think he he obviously decided to stay. And I think. I don't think he regrets staying at all. I think he, yeah. he'd, he'd rather have done what he's done at Liverpool than do it for another club. Yeah, yeah, he's won, won everything as a player, hasn't he? Except you know that 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 elusive league. But you know, as you say, like the things that he'd done as a player at Liverpool, the trophies he lifted. You know, the only man besides Stanley Matthews to have what, an, an FA Cup final basically named after him, but he, he yeah, ran yeah. the show. You know, it, it, I, I I would hope that he doesn't look back on his career and and, and think you know it, it, it didn't. Well, there's, listen. How many how many players can you name on? I'd I'd, I'd say personally on one hand, who you'd say has left a legacy at Liverpool, yep. player wise. I'm not talking managers included, but I'm talking players. Mm. And you look at who's left a legacy, and there's Stevie and Kenny. There's mm. not, there's there's other players who are in there, but not at that level. And mm. I think if you leave a legacy at Liverpool, it's just a phenomenal achievement, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, you're immortal, aren't you? Yeah. Um, so at the time, then you're there, and Pepe Reina and Didi Haman are in that squad. And we've heard unrepeatable stories about Christmas parties. So, all I'll ask, I'll put it this way some of the stories we've heard are likely to be true. Good guys like a drink, like to party. Yeah, good times though, yeah. Yeah, yeah, oh, brilliant, brilliant. I mean, they are, they're, they're the characters that you need in, in dressing rooms. They are, um, they are, it, it's funny how 
when they come in and they pick the language up, how quickly they interact in changing rooms and how much fun they are. I, I mean, I'm a huge fan of both of them, like personality-wise. I love them to bits. I think they're great. Um, I saw Pepe, what was it, last season, was it, when they were in the... Um, uh, God, what, where was it now? Was it Wembley? What, what final were they in? The Carabao Cup final? Oh, yeah. yeah. It was. Wasn't it last year in the Carabao Cup final? Yeah, so I was at the game... Um, and I seen Pepe down the tunnel, and it was great to see him because uh, I used to, when I whenever I was uh, sub and I wasn't playing, I used to do kicking with Pepe before the game. So I'd warm him up basically and do all the kicking, and um, just got to know him dead well, mm-hmm. and um, got loads of time for him. What a guy! But yeah, a, a, a great guy to have at a party as well. <laughs> so um, you mentioned the language there uh, sometimes I think you know big money signings who can't speak the language I have to avoid that how important do you think it is what to learn the language or no to... like yeah, to learn the language like if, if you sign someone who's world class but they can't speak a word of English then does that take a big part away from what they can do you think it's really important or, or maybe not I don't know I honestly don't because I think over time they'll pick it up I think mm. When you talk about world-class players, predominantly, I think it's changed recently because we look at Van Dijk as, as a world-class player. But predominantly, they are forward-thinking players. So they're the players who play at the top end of the pitch. Mm. They're not vocal, as in organising players. So they don't yep. need voice to be organising players. They find good positions naturally themselves. They know where to run. They, they know how to point to where they want it. They know how to clap to get the ball if they need the ball. They know how to shout in a certain way to get the ball. Um, and they pick the language up. They do pick it up very, very quickly because they're in and around that every single day in the changing room. And you'd be surprised how, how much they want to learn the language. They yeah. want to be involved in the humour. Because, we've. I mean, you guys will have played football as well. You'll have been in changing rooms. You love the banter. <laughs> uh, a group of lads who are on the other side you were telling jokes and laughing, you're thinking, I need to learn the language. I need to be involved in that. And yeah. you want to be part of it. So it's natural that they, they just want to pick it up. It's funny you should say, like, which end of the pitch it's more important. Because when I was asking that question, I had someone in mind, and, and it was Koulibaly. And we're, talk, we're talking about massive money for him to come in, potentially. It's probably you know, not going to happen. But to, to, to come and take a leadership role in the centre of defence, and apparently he cannot speak any English. So and I'm I was thinking like that's a big that's a big deal in sense yeah. of things. The only thing is is that again you can pick uh, it up. Yeah, he, and he's very experienced, but he's obviously picked up Italian as well, uh, yeah. native tongue. So w- they often say, don't they, when you pick one language up, it's very easy then to pick other languages up. Italian's not an easy language to learn, apparently either. So English will be relatively. Not easy because I don't think English is probably easy, but uh, mm. be able to pick it up quick enough. And again, yeah. when when you're an experienced player, what is he? Twenty nine now? Is he 10? Yeah. Yeah. thirty? Thirty, I think. Yeah. 30, he? yeah. So when you look at that, experience will will do most of it anyway. Um, yeah. So I think it's it's more youngsters when youngsters come in and they need to be helped. They need to ask questions on the pitch, whereas Koulibaly. Listen, he'll, he'll ask questions at certain times, but more often his experience will take him through a game anyway. Yeah, yeah. probably only needs a few words, doesn't he? Yeah. yeah. 
Well, just I mean, just to just to get back to your career. So obviously, Stephen, you you left Liverpool and, and moved to Blackburn. And in terms of that being a good move for you, is that is that a time that you look back on fondly? I think again, you got Player of the Year there at Blackburn, didn't you? Yeah, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. I remember coming in and saying, um, sitting down with Mark Hughes. I think I don't think I'd signed. I think I was just in the process of doing my medical and everything. And he just came in and um, sat down. He said, "We think you can be the best Premier, uh, best left back in the Premier League." And he said, "That's why we're signing you." And I remember thinking, "Bloody hell, that's all right, isn't it?" <laughs> Whereas I come from Liverpool, being a bit part player and playing every now and again. And um, he, he basically just said to me, every time, he says, you're going to play with like a really good player in front of you. So I had Morton Gams Pederson in front of me. He said, if you go past him, he'll cover for you every single time. He said, so I'm giving you license to overlap, do whatever you want going forward. He said, because I know you can do it because I've seen it and I know you're capable of it. So I was like, right, okay. I remember my first game played away at Luton. And I was quite probably still in me in me Liverpool mode for the first 10, 15 minutes. And he just looked at me on the sideline and he went, are you going to make an overlap or what? And I was like, right, okay. Suddenly mm-hmm. he just started making overlaps. And I was thinking, wow, there's someone covering every single time I go forward here. So it was the way the team was built uh, and geared up to play. And um, I just remember coming off the pitch saying, thinking to myself, I'm going to love it here. Yeah, you just I knew it, um, and it just continued to be like that. It was just brilliant. Um, just had license to go forward, and um, I remember after the at the end of the season, um, they basically just like not doing a review as such, but just chatting to to Mark Bowen after it. And Mark Bowen just said, "Listen, next year you'll be the best. You will be the best left back in the Premier League." And he went, "You'll get called up, and you'll go to." He said, you'll get called up for England 100% and things like that. And it just gave me confidence whether they actually thought that or not. But again, it's just planting seeds in your mind. Um, but the big thing for me as well was I just felt wanted. I've yeah. been bought by them. They, they covered me for, or they chased me for, for over a year. Uh, they've been interested there. And when you feel wanted and you feel like, and, and what he wants in this position, I felt great and arguably played some of the best football I've ever played. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. Just before we move on to Villa, I was just going to say, was two guy there when you were there? Yeah, oh. people, loads of players say he's the best player I've ever played with. Yeah, he's. I mean, I I get often asked about me me all time eleven, and yeah. I always put a, a three in midfield, and it's always two guy Gerard Alonso, and two guy is just phenomenal. I mean, we used to do keep ball before training every single day, where you'd do like a a, a square and you'd have players in the middle he never yeah. was in the middle I'd never see him in the middle at all uh, <laughs> if he goes the ball away in training he'd do press ups because it was just never seen um, and it was almost like a, a thing as if to say like I'm going to go down do my press ups and embarrass myself for giving the ball away here uh, mm-hmm. and show you all when exactly when I lose the ball he yeah. was, but the great thing about two guy was as well he was one of the most infectious players I'd ever played with as in a personality. Um, and I was dead fortunate in me, was it my second season there, like second full season, um, Sam Allardyce came in as manager and he said to me, 
pulled me in one day and he said, listen, I need you to do a job for me. So I was like, yeah, what's up? He said, I want you to be two guys' legs in midfield. He went, <laughs> just run, do all his running, win the ball back and just give it to a guy and let him win us the game. And um, that's all I did. And uh, it was pro- it was arguably the, the the highlight, like one of the highlights of like where I played and how I played is because I was just playing with a genius absolute mm. genius who, who saw things on the football pitch and I'm thinking how's he just seen that and how's he executed it and how's he done it the guy was phenomenal but the great thing look, people question why he never played higher he was he was more than content where he was and you know often people say like find a place where you're content and you'll be happy and you'll play your best stuff that was two guy he mm. loved it at Blackburn and was just perfectly happy with the way things were awesome. yeah. nice you mentioned there, you know, that like, you, you know, the the management thought that you'd had opportunities to go into the England squad. And I think you did get your first full, I'm not sure it qualifies as a cap because it was a friendly, but you got called up to the, the England squad when you were still at Blackburn. Was that Trinidad and, against Trinidad and Tobago? Yeah, it, it is. A, it was a full cap. Yeah, I got me, yeah. well, I got my first call up when I was actually at Liverpool. Um, did you? Yeah, I got called up a, a few times, but just never got on the bench or made an appearance for when I was at Liverpool. But um, when I was at Blackburn, got called up and we went across to uh, to Trinidad and played a game out there and came on for, I think it was seven minutes in the end, even though he told me I was coming on at half time and I was like waiting and waiting to come on. You know, he's thinking, please just let me on, let let me get a chance. And um, yeah, I mean, I was, I was probably like in the best form I've been in when I was at Blackburn. I was, I was playing really well. So f- felt like I deserved a call up, but, the competition for places was was very difficult. There was myself, Ashley Cole, and, and and Wayne Bridge at the time, so it was it was tough uh, to try and get a cap at any point. Do you consider Ashley Cole the best left back the country's ever had? I know a lot of people do. Hundred uh, percent. He was the best. He was the best left back in world football for easily six seven years for me. Mm. I mean, you think about that game where. Him and Ronaldo went toe to toe in the Euros. That mm. is, that's the best battle I've ever seen on a football pitch. And you're thinking of Ronaldo. Don't get me wrong. Was he at the height he, he reached? Probably a couple of years later. But he was the most feared footballer in in world football at the time. And mm. I just think that battle and what Ashley did that day just proved he was he was phenomenal. And it was great to train with him every day and and see the type of player he was and how he how he sort of prepare for games and what he did didn't work because I couldn't get to his level because he was that good um, but you, you try and take things off them and you try and learn but sometimes you've got to hold your hands up and just say wow what a talent absolutely incredible um, it, it's always the like a like a joke where between me and Ashley Cole we got 109 caps sadly <laughs> And I've got no shame in it at all, though, because I quite happily sit behind someone like that and, and, and watch them play every week because he was that good. I pushed, I, I, I'd like to think that I pushed him, as in I was playing well for, for my club. And whenever I trained in England, I tried to push him as hard as I could. Um, whether he agrees with that, I don't know. But I, I hope, I, I hope he, he felt that because... I certainly thought that I was I was in the best form I could be in anyway. 
Mm. I think like one one sort of to sort of cast your mind back a little bit in 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 terms of if you think about when that rivalry was there with Liverpool and Chelsea, um, and then even even with Man U, what you know, there's always a, a way of looking back and thinking it didn't quite work for England under Spengler and Eriksson. You had the Gerard Lampard sort of standoff, and then you had the you know the rivalries between like Liverpool and Chelsea, and we had Carragher, they had John Terry. Was there a lot of that in the in in the England dressing room? You know, like, did was that noticeable? That that sort of was there an edge to it, or or because yeah. you, obviously you're speaking glowingly there about Ashley Cole. You weren't playing up for Liverpool at the time, but still, was it noticeable? Yeah, see, I I saw I saw a couple of sides to it, and the reason I say that is I went in as as both a Liverpool player, so I was with Gerard and Carragher because there was just us three who were called up. Yeah. Uh, I think we were the only England players at the time. Uh, then Crouchy came in and then there was four of us and we would pretty much stay together because it was just, again, who you're comfortable with in and around it and there was that rivalry but then I went to Blackburn and Villa and I was, there was myself and David Bentley but then I went to Villa and there was me, Ashley, Ashley Young, Stuart Downing, James Milner, Emil Heskey, Gabby Agbonlahor, um, so there was, a, there was a, a large group of us but then I knew the lads from Liverpool so I'd go and sit with them as well so I'd mingle between everyone I wasn't bothered then because I played for a couple of clubs whereas mm. when you, you think of the players now they all come through the 18s, 19s, 20s, 21 there's a pathway in to the first team now through England because of the, the setup at St George's so they do get to know each other better and there's a better relationship built up between the players. Um, and I, th- I just think that's the way they, that it's evolved. And I think it's evolved for the better, though. Mm. Yeah, I think I think definitely, yeah. Because it, it was definitely a, a facet of it, of, of them England teams at the time. I mean, you mentioned there, like, obviously, you, you, you moved to Villa after Blackburn. How did the move come about? And, you know, you know, what was the driver between that? If, if your time at Blackburn, you know, you, you look back on it so fondly. Was it just a better opportunity at the time, or was there any anything that motivated that move? Um, well, the the move was was on the table the year before. Martin O'Neill wanted to sign me the year before, and Blackburn blocked it. They just said, "Absolutely not! You've only done a year and a half. I'd just signed a new four year deal. I think I'd just signed. Um, so I'd only been at the club for for six months, and then they offered me a new deal." Um, straight away off the back of my form and I signed a new four-year deal pretty much straight away. So they were like, you're not going. Uh, anyway, came to the next summer and the Venkies were in the process or, sorry, they, the Walker Trust were in the in the process of selling the club. But what they were trying to do was they were trying to maximise what they could take out the club before they left. So just before there, we before I left, they sold David Bentley for 15 million. They sold Roque Santa Cruz for 30 million to Man City. Mm-hmm. And then in the summer before I went, or when I went, there was Matt Derbyshire got sold for, I think it was about 5 million to Olympiacos. And then I got sold for, for 9 million to Aston Villa. And it was the way of them sort of recouping a little bit of money and balancing the books, if you like. But when I looked at Aston Villa, I was looking at the the, the uh, the the sort of the money getting put into the squad by Randy Lerner and what they were trying to achieve. They were trying to achieve breaking into the top four and getting Champions League football. 
I yeah. played Champions League football. I knew what them European nights were all about, and I knew the history of of, of Aston Villa, how big of a club it was. When I was at Blackburn, we were getting sort of twenty three, roughly twenty three thousand a week. Like mm. go to Villa and play in front of forty thousand every week, and it'd be packed and passionate fans. And I just thought um, it was an opportunity for me. I spoke to Fabio Capello about it and said because I was sort of in and out of squads at Blackburn, and he just said to me, "Listen, the World Cup's coming up. If you want to play, if you want to go to the World Cup, you're going to have to play for a bigger team and and compete at the top end of the table." And that sort of pushed me, to be honest, because I, I was very settled at Blackburn. I loved my time there. I loved the club. Um, mm. It was great for me. But then when you put everything on the table and you look at everything like that, then you go, I'm going to have to give it a go. Um, and that's why I, eventually I end up going to, to Villa. It's interesting that England managers are instigating moves like that, like sort of advising that you need to move if you're going to get in this team and things. Yeah, but again, it's it's playing with regular England internationals like the players I mentioned you, yeah. you look at the players who were in that squad and I think Stewie Downing is, is he, I think I think he signed around the same time uh, Stewie or just well, he signed in, in the same month anyway um, mm. so there was like other players who, who were in the squad and you, you're looking at the squad and you're thinking like this is the bulk of the England squad there was <laughs> six seven players in there that were making every single squad and again to me was like a sign I needed to do that plus at Blackburn we just sold two of our best players Santa Cruz and, and Bentley at the time were were a, a lethal partnership you think of players who played well together they were unbelievable together Bentley's crossing for Rocky Santa Cruz and he read it so well so there was the bulk of our goals disappeared I knew it was going to be tough to stay at Blackburn and for us to stay in them I mean we, we'd finished sixth the year before I think it was under Mark Hughes to stay in them positions, losing those two players, wasn't going to happen. No, uh, yeah. It was going to be difficult. Uh, so I, I just knew I had to make the move. Yeah. So then, obviously, you get the call up to the 2010 World Cup squad. Must have been a very proud moment. Must be dead exciting as well, going away and all that. I always think that would be a good, good it was time. Brilliant. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was touch and go because on the last game of the season, I was playing for Villa against Blackburn. And uh, I picked up an injury 20 minutes into the game. Someone like went across the back of my ankle, rolled my ankle, and it literally ballooned. And after the game, I, I remember the uh, the physio saying to me, listen, you need a scan on that. And I was like, oh, I'll be set, I'll be fine, I'll be fine. And the reason was, was I was going on holiday that night um, because I knew that I was going to be in the, in the squad leading up to the World Cup. So I knew I needed a break before I went. Mm. So I got the flight out to Dubai. And when I got there, my ankle was massive. I remember like sat there thinking, like, I've broke this or something's not right. So um, I remember getting like every day I'd sit around the pool and I'd get ice buckets on it and just try and settle it down as much as I could. I was trying to stay off it as much as possible. And I remember getting the text, congratulations, you've made the provisional 30 squad for the England squad. And I remember thinking, mm -hmm. like, now I've got to make sure I get this ankle right. Came back had a scan on it and it didn't show any major damage on it but I was still really struggling with it strapped it up I don't know how I got through the the uh, the squad training in line for the, the final squad I hobbled in training most days um, and was in agony going to bed I was on all kinds of painkillers 
I, I was having massages like late at night trying to get the fluid out of it as much as possible. And then um, I remember just thinking, there's no chance I'm making this squad. And then uh, got the phone call from um, one of the coaches just saying, congratulations, you've, you're in the uh, the 23-man squad. And I was just like, wow, phenomenal. Like, it, it was worth everything. Do you know what I mean? You just think the opportunity to... And the thing was, is that I knew I wasn't going to play. Mm. I was literally <laughs> with like a Carlsberg ticket. You've just won a Carlsberg <laughs> ticket to possibly the best seat an England fan can have. And I was yeah. training with the lads every single day. But I knew that, again, I was going over there to play a part in training to make sure that everyone was ready for it. Because if I offered you that, you'd be like, absolutely, I'd love <laughs> yeah. you. And it was an experience to go to, to South Africa, witness firsthand what it's like at a World Cup for a player. And it was it was it was tough at times, but it was brilliant as well. Intense. And and so was was Capello the authoritarian, the over the top authoritarian that he's made out to be? To a certain degree, but he also had a, a humorous side as well to to away from things. If you got him in a one one on one situation, he was he could still be intense, but he had he had a little bit of humour to him every now and again. But he was I remember one of the first things he said was talking about like a if if you're a, a pianist, a pianist doesn't just turn up and play to an to an opera house or uh, sorry, not an opera house, but in, in a theatre or whatever it might be in, in a musical. They practice for weeks and they, they train six, seven hours a day. And he was like, a golfer doesn't turn up to a major event and not practice during the week. They master their trade and things like that. So he was very much the same with football. Was like it, it takes a lot of dedication to where we need to get to. So if you didn't take training seriously, he was angry. Um, and I didn't mind that because I was probably pretty similar myself. Used to annoy me in training at club level if lads weren't taking it serious because I'm thinking, I want to progress here. I want to get better. I want us to do well at weekends, and um, but I understand why certain players found him difficult, and I, and I understand why the media found him difficult as well. And, and so, did you? Obviously, I think England qualified from the group quite handily, and am I right in thinking hammered by Germany? Then, as soon as you got out, soon as got out the group. Um, well, we got to the, I think it was the last sixteen, wasn't it? And we were playing Germany, and then Lampard scored the the goal that oh, one, yeah. and that would have took us level going into half time. Um, and I don't know whether there's footage of it, but I was actually on the bench, and when that went across the line, I got up and ran down the tunnel because I knew one of the guys who worked for the broadcasting company and um, looked at the replay, and you could clearly see it was like three, mm. like two yards over the line. It was comfortably in a yard, two yards, whatever it might be been. And uh, when I ran back out, he was like, where have you been? And I said, I've just looked at it on the TV. And he was like, was it over? And I was like, yeah. And you just see him march forward towards the referee and he <laughs> berating the referee going after him. And when we came in at half-time, um, all the players were like, it was in, it was in. And I was like, listen, I've seen it. It was 100% in. And it, it, the players were just deflated because yeah. they, they knew it was like a big moment in the game. And then obviously second half, Germany were just phenomenal. Mm. Um, and they just... Like, I think you say they hammered us second half. They probably did, um, but the lads were flat after that. Yeah, no, makes sense. You know, I, I I was struggling to remember. I just remember it being quite a big scoreline, but 
Now yeah. that you've refreshed my memory, it was it was that pivotal moment, wasn't it? Could have gone either way after that. Yeah. Yeah. So but did, did you get to experience like the intensity of the situation and, and the pressure on the players? Was that evident? From yeah, because we had a couple of situations at the World Cup where um we lost Rio Ferdinand at the build up of the World Cup through an injury. I think he did his ACL in training. And Again, when you when you're looking at squads and and progressing in a World Cup, you want your best players. And let's be honest, whether he's a Man United player or not, as Liverpool fans and like players, Rio's an incredible player or was at that moment in time, yeah. and made the England team better. And to lose a player like that was a massive. I mean, I'm used to being at home and watching it on TV. Breaking news: Rio Ferdinand's out of World Cup, and I'm sat there as a fan going, "Oh no, what's up with the hell?" I was on the pitch when it happened. And, you know, you're thinking, I'm seeing this firsthand. I'm seeing major things happening. And I know what it's going to be like getting reported at home. Um, It was interesting seeing the press coming in every single day um, where they they sort of walk around the back of where we were having, like, strappings or in the physio room. You see them all getting marched down the side of the pitch. And, again, I'm used to seeing that from the different side of the like watching it on the telly and seeing the build up to all the games. So again, that was different. And then we had the the incident with uh, with John Terry uh, talking about the captaincy and things like that. And you oh, sat yeah. in the in the hotel oh, in the dining room when this broke, and I was like, "Wow, this is incredible." Um, and it was so different. But again, this was it, it. It was when I look back on it, that's my feeling now. I was like, "God, that was." That was major when it happened, but when I look back on it, then at that moment in time, that was that was normal in football. I'm used to that. I'm used to that side of things, but uh, but I I didn't get involved in it. It was not my place to get involved. Again, I just sort of took a back back seat out the way and uh, didn't get involved in it. Yeah. So obviously you've gone on to play for loads of teams, and I'm conscious of your time. We can't go can't go through everyone. <laughs> 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 but I was going to say most notably though it was Bolton wasn't it yeah. and Le- Leeds as well Leeds yeah Leeds um, just on your Bolton time I'm, I'm trying to think what that squad was no I, I only went on loan at Bolton I only did um, a three month loan um, oh, right. and then I ended up joining Leeds for a couple of years so no they, they'd just been relegated into the uh, the championship maybe the year before um, but uh, Jay Spearham was there at the time. Jay had just signed uh, a new deal, and all the big the big hitters have been sort of taken off the wage book, uh, if you like. And um, Kevin Davis was there, so mm. uh, it was it was. I mean, I, for me, it was just an opportunity to get out of Villa at the time because I'd been sort of um, told I could leave. So for me, it was just trying to get some game time and get myself back in uh, back on the pitch and, and playing some some valuable minutes, if you like. But um, I I went to Leeds after that and signed a, a I think I signed a two and a half year deal at Leeds. Yeah, yeah. I, I was Leeds because obviously at that I think I'm right in saying at that point they they'd had that fall financially, hadn't they? And and you know they they dropped away from where they were, you know, a big Premier League team. And how was that like sort of playing at them because it felt really weird looking at Leeds, you know, as a Liverpool fan and you, they were this massive club that were, that were right up there. And then they just disappeared and fell down the ranks. You know, how was it like going to games and stuff? Because they were still a huge club. It just, it didn't feel like they were in the right tier. No, I mean, fan base. Wow. 
phenomenal. Brilliant fans, amazing fans. When you think of the following, uh, you go in like championship games and you're getting six, seven thousand, eight thousand going to games. I mean, their following was just incredible. Mm. But I, I went at the wrong time, um, as in, I got told that they were getting bought out. There'd be new owners coming in straight away and. Really, I should have waited. Um, I should have stayed at Villa and sort of saw out that the rest of that. I should have perhaps gone on loan for, for six months and assessed the situation. But I signed a deal uh, for, for the two and a half years and the, the ownership never went through. And we were, we were owned by a Dubai consortium who never had the money that they said they had. Uh, and then we had the dreaded situation with uh, Massimo Cellino, who was an Italian owner who basically came in and just stripped the club back completely, put us put us on packed lunches, uh, had to bring our own, <laughs> had to bring our own food in, buy your own socks, buy your own slips, like for okay. training. It was embarrassing. Um, there was, it was just Mickey Mouse, like absolutely horrendous. I've never, I've never experienced anything like it since. I, I, I don't think anyone will. I mean, I've never heard anything like it again. But um, yeah. A, batter, a crazy owner with crazy ideas and uh, I was I was I mean I, I left before he left but the day he left I was absolutely delighted that he was out of Leeds because they didn't deserve what he was doing to that club mm-hmm. yeah it, it, it you know from outside looking in and not not being like a, you know close to Leeds or, or, or nothing but looking it just it didn't look right from you know even seeing it from a distance as a Liverpool fan it just felt odd and weird so do you look back on your time at Leeds like in terms of dressing room characters, players you were with, it, it, does any it, it, is it one that stands out or that you you still enjoyed, or or was it is it one that you saw? A great club, um, great great players in the changing room, difficult circumstances behind the scenes, which never helps any team, especially yeah. when you you're juggling things like that, uh, like an owner who's who's stripping things away from you, and you you've got lads constantly coming in. Just one, I mean, we weren't getting paid at times. Um, mm. You'd wait till the end of the month, and then suddenly there's there's no pay slip in the in the bank, and you've got to think this isn't Premier League level. This is a different level, and you're looking at it thinking, what's going on here? So senior players, I was a I was deemed as a senior player. I think I was 30 or 31 when I went to Leeds. So I'm deemed as a as a senior player playing at, at the the high level that I played at. There was myself and Michael Brown. Me and Michael Brown most days were putting fires out literally trying to deal with situations and I'm think like I look back at it now and I think that's not football. That's mm. not what we should be doing. That wasn't our job title. Our job title was to go on the pitch and do a job. But mm. you do things behind the scenes and him as an owner, I mean some of the stories I could tell you about him are just frightening. Crazy. No good. I mean obviously Phil mentioned we are conscious of your time here, but obviously there was a couple there's a couple of other, you know, clubs which we'll just quickly spin through. So you spent some time at Derby, Wigan, Burton Albion before you finished at Bradford City. Yeah. All good all good clubs, all places that you really enjoy playing football. Um time at Burton wasn't great. Um just didn't work out. Got injured uh early on in the season, never really recovered. Um they didn't seem the best of me. I didn't feel like I played well at all there, um, didn't work out. Um, Wigan was brilliant, absolutely loved it. Um, it was great to to play the style of football that they played. It was Gary Caldwell who was manager at the time and it was it was superb. 
got them promoted from League One into the into the Championship, and I think the first 10, 10 games were tough. And Gary lost his job around about 10, 11 games. And then it became really tough when Warren Joyce came in. Um, he had a mass change in personnel in the, in the changing room and things like that. But um, I, I enjoyed the club. I thought the club was brilliant. I'm gutted to see where it's at now. That that That's sad as to where it is. Um, and Bradford was... The reason I ended up going to Bradford was... I went, I went for an emotional one, in, in, if I'm being honest. Um I'd started off, made my league debut for Bradford on loan, and I knew I was coming to the towards the end of my career. And they were fighting for um, promotion uh, in the playoff places or trying to get in the playoff places. I joined and they were in sixth place, and we just fall, uh, fell short. We had a terrible run of form. Manager got sacked. Um, people might say it was my fault, but uh, <laughs> but um, in my head, I'd gone for the the I'd gone for the fairy tale ending. I wanted to finish at Wembley and get promoted, and that was my that was my way out the game, if you like. And it didn't it didn't work out that way, but um, it was nice to go full circle in a strange way. Um, yeah. It's nice to finish where I'd I'd okay I'd started at the academy, but in my playing professional career I'd, I'd finished at Bradford, and that was it was a nice way to go out. Yeah, no, I I I, I can see that, I can understand that. Sorry, yeah. Phil. I'm just gonna say no. So your decision to retire in the end, then what? What was that down to? Was the body just not injuries, or what was it? Do you feel like you couldn't give what you previously had been able to? Uh, do you know what it was? Um, it was strange. I was I was starting to do some media work. Um, mm-hmm. I was working for uh, the BBC doing well, Five Live. I'd done a couple of radio shows. They just asked me to come in and uh, to do a radio show. And do you know when it just works and you you sit there and you think. I like this. And mm. uh, I remember coming out and the guy who'd booked me in just went, really enjoyed you. Would you like to come back next week? And I was like, yeah, I would. Um, went back the following week, did well again, really enjoyed it. And then he said to me, um, we do, uh, I don't know if you remember, it used to be called Match of the Day Extra. It was a Sunday morning yeah. and yeah. Uh, it used to be on the telly. So he said, um, it's basically like a radio show where you just have discussions about the the games the day before and we think you'd be perfect for it and um, I went on there and it went really well and then people started to pick up on me and started offering me work and I just thought I'm, I'm quite enjoying this and then I got a phone call from the BBC one day the guy who had originally booked me and he just said are you going to carry on playing next year and I'd had a couple of offers uh, from clubs to continue playing and Bradford was one of them and there's a few others as well and um, I just thought, I wonder how long I can carry on playing for. I reckon I'd have probably played for another couple of years comfortably. But mm. then I thought the media game can be another 20, 30 years if, if I do it well. And I thought, if I don't take this opportunity, they'll offer it to someone else. And um, just literally, I retired on the phone to him. I went, because he said, there's work for you here if you want it. And I literally just, in my head, just went, just do it. And I just went, yeah, I'll retire. And he was like, what? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll retire. I said, <laughs> for me, I'll retire. And it just felt right. Um, mm. And I made the decision. And I remember, um, I went, <laughs> it was quite funny, actually. Simon Grayson was manager at, um, at Bradford. And we just played a game. And I, I played really well in the game. Um, and it was, on, it was on Sky, actually. And um, after the game, I just said to him, can I have a word? 
And he was like, yeah. And I was like, um, so I went into his office. He was like, what's up? So I said, um, <laughs> I'm going to retire. And he went, what? So I went, retire. And he was like, we've got three more games left. I went, no, at the end of the season. I was like, no. Right, no. Right. And he was like, um, and he turned around to me and he just went, you're going too early. And I was like, why? And he went, you've got like a couple of years in you easily. He went, you're great around the place with the young lads. He went, you've got so much to give to, to like the, the, the players. He said, you might not play every single week. He said, but what you can give to this squad or any other squad is, is brilliant. And uh, I just went, nah, it's me done. I just went, I've made my mind up. I just knew it was the right thing to do. Um, to be fair, like he was brilliant with me um, and made me captain for the last game uh, against, uh, we played Scunthorpe away. Bought me off in the game, um, got like a stand innovation from like the Bradford away fans, and actually got one from the home fans, which was which is really nice as well. As well, and uh, yeah, walked off crying my eyes out, absolutely yeah. good. Um, and the funny thing was, is like I remember walking off thinking, I'm gonna miss this so much, and um, I haven't missed it at all because really? I love what I do now. Um, yeah, and that's why. I, I never regret re- retiring at the time I retired. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean obviously the me- your media side of your, your career is going really well, isn't it? You know, we've seen you popping up on more and more stuff. Um, and at the same time, I'm, I'm right in saying you've launched a podcast? Uh, no, I don't do a podcast. I do um, something on Instagram. Um, so the big thing for me is, is like I, I watch people interviewing like you're doing with me now. Um, <laughs> ex-players and things like that. But the big thing for me is to make me a better pundit, a better um, better analysis of things, I want to speak to the fans and get it from their perspective. So what I do is, is that the games I work at or I look at games when I'm not working is I'll go live straight after the game and I'll get a fan on from each team or a couple of fans from each team and I want to hear what they've got to say about their club. Because I, I see it from my perspective of what I see on the pitch, but I'm not down the, the concourse or having a beer with the lads and chatting about what players they like and what they don't like and what they don't like about the club. So I want to get a better understanding of that. So I think it's quite interesting for fans to come on and talk to me about their club, but I can give them the professional's point of view of what they might not be seeing or might not be understanding. Like you guys have just said tonight, it's interesting that you say that. God, you don't think of that. So I can give them a different perspective. And the great thing is, is that they can grill me as much as they want. They can ask me as many questions as they want. Um, I'm not kicking them off after. I get I get frustrated with phone-ins and things yeah. on the radio where it's like, yeah. oh, hiya, John, what would you like to say? Oh, this is my point about my team. And then they, they don't speak to him again. And then no, they discuss it between themselves. And you think, well, the reason you've got him on is to speak to him. Well, speak to him then. Let him have his say. So for me, it's about interaction with fans and, and trying to learn about different clubs um, because I think it's something that um, both of us can learn from. Um, yeah. A big thing for me is just like obviously it's like the, the, the in slogan at the moment, but football is nothing without the fans. So you, with, with social media and the way everything's moving now is, is that you want to you want to know about people people's personalities, and we've got that opportunity to tap into that now. So uh, for me, that's the big thing. 
Yeah, I think it's really important, isn't it? I'll, I'll just mention it for, for listeners' benefit. It's, it's no goals barred, isn't it? Is, is, yeah, is, no goals barred on my Instagram. So what I'll do is most week I'll post a, a game that I'm going to be covering uh, and then I'll go live, but I'll let them know what time I'm going live. It's usually 15 minutes after kick uh, after the game finishes. And yeah. more often than not, it is live from, from the ground. Yeah, so I have listened to a few of them and, and, and they are really good. So to the listeners, do tune in and, and, and check it out because, it, you know, as you've said there, Stephen, it's it's really important. I think now in football, you know, in the old days, you know, I think fans had that connection with players a lot more, you know, they were a lot more accessible. But then, yeah. and it's something that we found and one of the reasons that we do this, you know, with, with, with the ATP extras is, is to try and sort of build that little bit more familiarity because I think nowadays players are so cosseted, aren't they? You know, with the, the way that clubs, you know, handle them and, and keep them at arm's distance from fans and, you know, lifestyles are completely different probably from the average Joe Bloggs fan. So it, it it's difficult to feel that, that sort of connection. And as you say, I, th- I think having things like this, like our podcast, you know, what you're doing there, which I think is a brilliant initiative, really, you know, re- really good and, and innovative, you know, in, in its own in its own way. Um, I'm surprised that you're not putting it out as a podcast because it would be easy to get it on a pl- podcast platform and put it out there. Oh, just no, 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 no. Well Listen, it's, it's, in, it's in the infancy at the moment. It's things that I'll look at and, and try and progress as, as things go on. Um, but the big thing for me is, is that I, I love to see the reaction straight away. Mm. how people feel i think often like when we dissect things now we do it two three days after and everything's dropped off you don't say what you want to say and you forget what's gone on in the game or little incidences whereas i want to get people when they're raw i want that emotion yeah. to come across and the, the thing as well is like i um i want people to realize my personality as well i mean the big thing for me is is that i'm quite i'm quite um what's probably the word for me i'm quite strict with myself when I'm on telly is in like I want to be professional as to why I want to get my point across and what I want to say but when I do this I want people to grill me I want to have a laugh with them as well if they don't yeah. agree with what I said on a radio show or on tv in a week pull me up on it and have a go at me and have and grill me and and mm. piss out on me do what you want to do I'm not bothered um because you'll see a completely different side of me and and that's what I want people to see as well because um, you can often perceive people in different ways, so I think that's again where you are trying to get your your own personality across. I think that will help. I was going to say I think it will help you in your in your punditry and your analysis of of you know Premier League games and stuff as well, won't it? Because you, it is good to have that insight. Yeah, I mean I've done a few bits already where I've used it, where mm. I've, I've learned things about clubs and fans and what they want, and I can say I can actually turn around now and say, well. I don't know, it was about a Spurs fan when I was talking about it. And I was like, well, I spoke to a Spurs fan the other day and he's saying this. Mm. And then look, I knows his stuff. Like he's, he's done, but you are, you're doing your homework. But I, I'm enjoying doing it as well. It's not a chore for me. Um, mm. It's enjoyable to get to know what, what, what people are thinking and what their perception is of things. Because we all have a different view on it. And the great thing is as well, when it's live and you've got someone on, the more this builds up and the, hopefully the more it grows, You'll get the club, the fans of that club saying, "Well, I don't agree with that," and you can have the comments below, and you can, "Well, he doesn't agree with that. What do you think about this?" And you can bring the questions in, or you drop your call, your your uh, your caller out and go, "Okay, if you've got something to say, come on and voice it. Then let's have you yeah. on and have that." And that's the great thing about it because on an Instagram live, you can be live for four hours. Now you can clip yeah. up what you want within that four hours, but. As long as it's interesting and it's it's vocal, 
and then uh, you can get people to come on and, and contest what they're saying the next time that you want to go live. We'd love yeah, to return yeah. the favour. Uh, wouldn't we? we? We'd love to return the favour and come on after Liverpool or everything. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, well, yeah. We, we do we do one ourselves. We do like what we call our post match reaction. It's normally me and the boozer and, and one of the lads, <laughs> one of the other reds and the boozer. And yeah. to be fair, like it's a bit rough around the edges, you know, when we're doing it, just like the call. Well, that's what I like about what I'm doing. Mine's rough around the edges. It's I'm not putting out a TV channel. Um, yeah, exactly. And that's the thing as well when you say doing like podcasts or YouTube and things like that. I mean, for me, I'm 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 quite busy most of the time so to be able to to do all like setting up all that that's that's something that's going to be tough to do whereas when you you go live i literally need my phone mm, yeah. I, go, I go on my yeah. phone and i just invite people in um do a little bit of vetting behind the scenes to make sure that they they're good good people who are coming on who are going to speak well and things like that but once you build up a nice portfolio of people um and you've got good fans who want to talk about football and who love the football clubs why wouldn't you want to get involved? I mean, that's the yeah. thing for me. It's it's a good platform to speak to a an ex player who's played at the, the top level, um, who's who's working in in the media and seeing things from different angles all the time. Um, yeah, so I'm big on myself. No, I, 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 as I say, I, I think it's 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 really good. You know, from what I what I've seen of it. Um, so do check it out. What what's your uh, Instagram um, handle, Stephen? Uh, Stephen Warnock three, I think it is. Uh, I'm going to check. I don't even know. It's not good, that's is it? That's part of your business. You're getting built on. You don't even know your handle. Come on. Stephen Warnock 3. So it's Stephen Warnock 3. So to the listeners, do do tune in and check it out because it is really good. And and what Steve's doing, is, it is boss. And we will come on if you if you fancy giving us a shout. Absolutely. Yeah, love to have you on. Just before you, just before you go, Stephen, I've got a mate, um, Joe Birchall, his name is. And he, he was in Vegas at the same time you were. And he makes out like... You and him were boss mates in Vegas, and it, this is in the, in our workplace. And I say, I said to him, I'm speaking to you. I said, I bet he doesn't even know your name. He won't even know who you are. And he went to ask him. So, do you remember Joe Birchall from Vegas? The uh, the time he said he can fix a um, a machine out there. Did we he? He and we were on oh. the daiquiris. It was during the day, and the girl come up and went, uh, "I'm sorry, there's no more strawberry daiquiris available." And she was, and he was like, "Why? What's up?" She said, "The machine's broke." And he went, oh, I fixed them. Do you want me to go and get my tool bag? And she was like, really? And he was like, fuck off. <laughs> Do you know what? Funny, funny. He, he texted me before saying, I bet you're any money. He says, I'm the, I'm the daiquiri mechanic. <laughs> Brilliant, lad. Oh, I'm gutted. I, I, I was hoping you were going to say you didn't know him. Nice <laughs> lad to come across. Do you know what? When I was talking about Pepe Reina, you also want him there as well. Nice. All right. So yeah, him, Haman, and Raina, proper party. <laughs> yeah, I'll give him that. All right. It's been yeah, a pleasure. It's an absolute pleasure, Stephen. No, thanks for giving us so much time, being so generous there, getting on for the, the better part of two hours there do, doing the podcast. So being incredibly generous, you know, tonight with your time. So really, really do appreciate it. As I said to, to the listeners, do tune in and check out Stephen's um, Instagram Live. It's not. I want to call it a podcast, but it's not a podcast. What do you call it? Like a cast or something? Or show yeah um it, it, it's it's really good and, it, and and i think it's going to go massive um so do check it out um again Stephen, thanks for coming on joining us been a pleasure oh, man. Cheers, guys. appreciate it